Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for, God, I just want to say thank you for my dad. Um, He's been gone a while now, but I just want to say thank you that I had a father that loved me and taught me things. I thank you for all the fathers in here. I pray that, God, you'd bless them today. I thank you for being our father, that every good and perfect gift comes from you that we have. So we just say thank you. I pray, secondly, God, that uh, as we open up the book of Galatians, that it would make sense. And then thirdly, I pray we'd be different because we've been here. Thank you, God. Uh, We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a question for you. What does does it mean to be a Christian? If you had to define that in your mind, what does it mean to be a Christian? Some people have said, um, being a Christian means to be a follower, a follower of Jesus. That's true. That's absolutely true. The first church was called Christian because they were like little Christs, little Jesuses walking around. Some people think a Christian is someone who's born in the U.S. and like to wear red, white, and blue and sing a lot of, sing a star-spangled banner. That's a Christian. You know what a Christian might be? A Christian is a person who can do whatever they want, sin any way they want, but Jesus will forgive them anyhow. That's what some people think a Christian is. I want to make this one argument today. Based on what we're going to study, I believe a Christian is a person who is under new management, and they understand it. I'm going to have, I, I was, uh, Pastor Ken and I were gone all week at this big conference, so I made my really fancy slides on my iPad, so you're going to be wild by my high-tech slides this morning. But what that means, being under new management, means a person who's failing in life, a person whose life has really reached the end where they're failing, they are desperate, calls on somebody to come in and fix their life. And then when that person comes in and fixes their life, they not only renew them, but they give them a whole new way to live. They're under new management. I'll start with a story. It's a story about Applegate River Lodge. 22 years ago, there's this lodge that was built by a husband and wife, Richard and Joanna Davis. They made this lodge in the southern part of Oregon, up in the mountains, and they made it out of nice pine, uh, pine wood. They, they crafted the whole thing. It took them a number of years to make it. After the uh, lodge went into business, about 10 years later, they got divorced. They started really fighting. They hated each other. And this caused them to not care about the lodge as much. They were losing money. Not only were they losing money, but they uh, started separating. Actually, Richard, the husband, he started holing up in the back of the hotel, and all he'd do all day is smoke marijuana. He called it medicinal, but he would be high all day long while his wife's running the lodge. They did have two sons. They were older sons. They worked at the lodge, but they also didn't get along. And really what they wanted to do is just play their Grateful Dead music all night long from 10 o'clock until 3 the next morning in the hotel lounge. One day, in the middle of Joanna's desperation, she received a phone call out of the blue. And it was from this guy, Gordon Ramsay, from Hotel Hell. Any of you ever heard of Gordon Ramsay or Hotel Hell? Raise your hand. He did Hell's Kitchen. He's got, like, blonde hair. You've probably seen him. You guys have never seen him? Did you ever hear of Gordon Ramsay? Are you guys alive out there or sick like me? 
Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Gordon Ramsay. See? Excellent. Okay. So Gordon Ramsay and the producers of Hotel Hell called this lady, and they wanted to do a show on their lodge. She couldn't believe it because she was, she was at the end of her rope. Well, this guy, Gordon Ramsay, came in, and he said, if you want our help, you have to allow me to completely take over. So she said, okay. He came in to inspect the hotel. First of all, he said when he walked into the lobby, first thing he smelled is marijuana smoke everywhere. Next, he went to the son's bedrooms, and they were full of dead roaches and dead insects, and they were just filthy. He met with the mom, and he took her books, her accounting books, and he figured, uh, you aren't only in debt, you're in debt to about a million dollars. Why are you in debt to a million dollars? She said, well, I want to keep this business going, and I need to pay my sons. So she's given her sons a big salary. They weren't putting the money back into the hotel at all. In fact, they would just spend it on whatever they wanted, lived in a hotel, and they'd just play their Grateful Dead music all night long. He started going to the restaurant. He noticed at the restaurant they had dogs begging at the tables in the hotel restaurant. The people are just eating the food. You could tell they didn't like it. He's interviewing them. How do you like your rooms? Ah, they're not clean sometimes, but we often come for the music. He went to his bedroom, took out one of those black lights, and noticed there were stains all over the bedspread and the sheets, even on the curtains, stains and just mildew everywhere. So he slept on the, on the bed in his sleeping bag that he brought. said when he started to go to bed at 10 o'clock, sure enough, the music started. It was loud thumping music all night long, and he couldn't sleep. Next morning, he was mad. He told them, he said, we will turn your hotel around, but you have got to change. So the first thing he did is he had them hash out all their disagreements. Man, they were fighting like crazy, but they had to agree that they no longer would go at each other's throats. The lady, Joanna, was just completely ashamed of how she mismanaged it, the million dollars in debt. He said, here's what we're going to do. So what he did is he got him new furniture in the lobby, new online system to check people in. He redecorated, recleaned all the rooms. They simplified the menu. They made an outdoor pavilion for music. And for those who came for the music, he put rooms out by the pavilion so they could stay there. And then he told Richard, he said, if you want to be a part of this, you've got to stop smoking marijuana. If you don't, you're gone. So this guy, that Gordon guy came in, and man, he turned this place upside down. And now, it is, it is not just in the black, but if you read their online comments, people love the place. They completely changed it because they were under new management. That's what Christianity is. It's being under new management. It's allowing this person named Christ to take your old life and to exchange it for his. That's what it is. Let, let me show you. Go to Galatians 2, 15 to the end of chapter 2. This is, I'd say this is the heart of the book of Galatians because he's going to transition from the example of Peter and Peter's just hypocritical living to he's going to go into theology in chapter 3 and 4 and in 5 he gets more practical, but he's transitioning. And he's coming up with this one subject of an exchanged life. 
Let me show you what I mean. Starting in verse 15. Paul writes, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In this life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Okay, that's what we're going to look at. Actually, it's, it's minimal verses, but it says an awful lot. And it, the language can be kind of confusing. So I'm breaking this down in three little sections. First of all, the question is, Paul wants something. And he wants you and me to want it as well. So the first question is, what does Paul want? Second thing we're going to answer is, how do we get what we want? And then the third thing is, how do you know if you actually have it? What are some signs that this thing that Paul wants is actually possessed or obtained? So the first thing is, what does Paul want? Or what does he want us to want? If you notice in verse 15... Through 17, one word is used four times. It's the word justified. Look at verse 16. Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Christ. We who have put our faith in Christ, we did that so we may be justified. And if while we seek to be justified. Okay, so he keeps using this word justified. That's what he wants. Actually, that's why he wrote the book of Galatians. He wants to be justified. He wants you to be justified. That's a big word. What does that mean? Some people say it means just as, if I, just as if I haven't sinned. But here's what it means. It means when God looks down on me, he makes a declaration like a judge would. He says, he puts the gavel down and he declares you righteous. That means you are perfect in his sight. So Paul wants to be perfect in his sight. Where God is pleased, satisfied, forever embracing me as his son or daughter. That's what justified means. Here's the process of justification. On the far left side, you have a dirty glass. That represents what our life is like before Jesus enters into it. We are dirty, we're cracked, and when we pour liquid in, it just comes out. We can't contain it. We are like that glass. We're failures. We're broken. We're like that hotel before Hotel Hell came in. We're desperate. And so what Paul says is what God wants to do is he not only wants to clean our glass, make us sin, sinless, he wants to fill it to the top with Christ's righteousness. That third part, you can't really see the blue, but that third glass is full of water. That third part is what people don't realize. That's called positive 
justification or positive, uh, being justified in a positive manner. Here's what that means. Do you remember when Jesus died on a cross and he said, it is finished? Do you know what he finished? He finished the full will of God for him in his life. He pleased God to such a degree that when he said, it is finished, he knew the Father had nothing else for him to do. When I'm justified, all of the work that Jesus did is given to me. It's not just I'm forgiven. That's, what pe that's where most people stop in Christianity. Oh, I'm clean, but now i got to work like crazy to fill my glass. And if I don't do enough, God will never be happy with me. That's not justification. That, not only am I clean, but I'm full. So that means I'm done. You probably heard it said, religion spells the way to God as D-O, do. Christianity spells it as D-O-N-E. I'm done. I'm done. you got to understand that because so many of you don't think you're done. So many of you, man, I, I haven't done enough. I didn't go to church last week or something, and God's, God's upset with me. Did you know if you believe in Christ, you are sitting at the right hand of God right now in his mind? He's satisfied. He's good. And I, and I know we've been talking about this, but you guys need to put this in your head because it's so hard to buy it. I don't believe this. That's why you wrote the book of Galatians. But the question is, do you want this? Do you want to be full? Do you want it? That Joanna who had the hotel, she let that guy come because she knew she was desperate. The best way to put it is you won't get a glass full of water unless you're thirsty. Are you thirsty for Jesus, or are you just fine? Most people are okay. Ah, uh, Sunday church is enough for me, but I really don't need Jesus. I got a good job. I'm smart. I got good friends, but ah, uh, I'm not desperate. In my mind, until you get desperate, I don't think you're really saved. I know that sounds harsh. But until you really know you need saving, you won't call on a Savior. So the question is, do you want it? And if you say, yes, I do, I need help, then the next question is, how do we get what we want? How do we get it? It's very easy. Look at verses 15 to 19. It's obvious. And this is stuff that is like Christianity 101. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law. What he's saying is, Paul is writing to the Jews who became Christians. Why did the Jews become Christians? The early Jews become Christians? Because they knew they were not satisfying God as a Jew. So they believed in Christ. That's why he writes, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by... And in the next phrase, by observing the law. That word observing is where we get our word work, ergon. So how do I get it? What he's saying is it's, we don't receive God's favor by work. Do you know what work is? It's actually it's a sign of pride. It's actually telling God, don't worry about it. I can do it by myself. Just give me some laws. I'll do it. Do you remember when they had Mount Sinai? Mount Sinai is this big mountain in the middle of the desert. And Moses said, I'm going to go up to God. Do you guys want to come with me? They go, no, Moses, you go by yourself. 
you just tell them, just tell them to give us some laws. We'll just do it. We'll do it. What they're saying is they really think they don't need God in their life. They'll do it on their own. There's so many people like that. If they just go to church, they're done. See, I'm done. I did it. I did what he wanted me to do. That's how I felt. The churches I went to, I'd go to church on Saturday night because it was 15 minutes, sometimes 20 minutes, and I thought I was done. I did what God wanted me to do. Now I can go live my life without God. See? That's pride. Pride is independence from God. says, um, verse 16, Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith. It can't be any more clear in Christ. Faith is a passive work. You see that sailboat? That sailboat, let's say, once I believe in Christ, he gives me that boat, and then he carries me by his Spirit. A sailboat doesn't move because we're rowing. A sailboat moves because the wind pushes it. So it's called passive action. A sailboat moves because it receives wind. The reason I'm saved because I receive the Holy Spirit in my life. I don't work for Him. I receive Him by faith. I grab a hold of what He says is true and I live in it. Just like a sail grabs a hold of the wind and captures it and lets it take it, I take a hold of His promises and live in them, and he changes my life as I walk in them. It's called passive action. I am being acted upon. I'm not the actor. So the work is active verb. Faith is passive verb. That's what salvation is. Paul, you like this illustration. I have water. I have been made, I've been designed to be able to drink. So when I drink, should I take credit for how good of a drinker I am? No, I've been designed to be able to drink. God made me that way. In the same way, he's made me to receive him by faith. I should never take credit for that. That's how I've been made. Does that make sense? Does that, does that make, who said yep? Yeah. I got one. I got two. Two? Now Paul keeps writing. He says, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Again, the same word, not by work. Because by work, the law of the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does not mean that Christ promotes sin. Absolutely. That's kind of a tricky sentence right there, verse 17. Verse 17 is basically saying this. Once I believe in Jesus and I go back to the law, and then I, keep, and I realize I can't do the law, so really I'm a sinner, so do I come to Christ so I can be a sinner? No, I don't. I don't go back to the law. I'm done with it. He puts it like this in verse 18. Look at verse 18. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. In other words, here you could put it like this. If what I tried didn't work the first time, why do I think it will work the second time after I'm saved? There's a lot of people, and I, I put it like this, there's a lot of people that are saved by, it's, it's by credit card. They get saved, and when they get saved, they're like, yes, I'm saved, and I just believe, but now that I'm saved, i got to work like crazy to make sure I'm in. It's, it's salvation by credit card. It, I know it won't save me, but it's going to keep me in. So there are people that will, uh, you know, they'll have to go to church Sunday, Wednesday. They will have to do all those things to make sure God's pleased with them. 
if it didn't work the first time pleasing him, why will it work the second time? It won't. Look at it like this. Remember that hotel? Let's say the lady is desperate. She's, her husband's smoking marijuana. Her sons are just playing music. And then hotel hell comes in, gives her money. That guy leaves, and then she keeps doing the same thing she's always doing. What a joke. What a waste. In my mind, if you keep living the same way you do after you've been saved, I'm not sure. Because it didn't get you saved the first time. Who's, why do you think it's going to keep you in God's favor the second time? Does that make sense? All right, all right. I got one person tracking with me. That's good. Because I don't even know if it makes sense to me. I'm not sure. Anyhow, this is heavy stuff. So how do I know if I got it? How do I know I really received it? I think there's a real exchange that goes on. I'll put it like this. Being in Christ. If you notice in verse 15 through like 18, you'll keep seeing this prepositional in Jesus. In Christ Jesus. In Christ. Verse 17, in Christ. The idea is when I believe in Christ, I am now in his life. I'm identified in him. So when he died on the cross, so did I. When he rose from the dead, so did I. Because he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, so am I. Because I'm in him. That's the top part. Being in Christ, the next word say, infers, assumes, or really demands now that Christ needs to now be in my life. It's an exchange. It's not just, yep, I'm in Jesus, but I keep living as I want. It's an exchange. Here, I'll show you how the exchange takes place. Verse 20. Verse 20 to me, verse 20 is a verse that, um, it, it changed my life, but if you really understand it, it should change you every single day. It's a continual verse. It's not just meant for one-time salvation. It's progressive sanctification. That means you're always becoming like Christ. But in order to become like Christ, you need to daily die. Let me show you. Verse 20. For through the law, I died to the law. This is 19. So that I might live for God. So I died to the law. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this is really, what this is, is this is an issue of an identity. So it's like this. This is how you die. And what I have there, I am, and in that, in that box you have to put, you have to put what, how you perceive yourself and what is it about you that pleases God. I'll give you an illustration. Go to Philippians chapter 3. You could put it like this. I am represents how you perceive yourself and what you depend on, what you depend upon to make God happy. You can put it like this. What can't you live without? They're all questions of identity. Philippians 3, verse 4. Paul's talking about himself and how, what he has confidence in. Before he came to Christ, look what he had confidence in. 
If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I circumcised on the eighth day. So he was born into the Jewish nation. That's what that means. He's part of the covenant people. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. That was a big tribe because King Saul came out of the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul's name was Saul, so he took a lot of pride in that. Look, man, I'm not just a Jew, but I'm the Jew of the Jews. Then he goes on to say, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. With regards to the law, I'm a Pharisee. That means I am a lawyer. I know the law. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. I'm the one that went after those rascally Christians at the beginning. See, I really believe my Judaism. And then with regards to legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. So my identity, I was the best Jew you ever saw. But then you get to verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. What he's saying is I need to die if I'm going to get Jesus. I need to die. I'll tell you what about me, my heritage. I thought I was, because I was raised as a good Catholic guy. I was a nice guy. I really put a lot of, um, I really thought God liked me, because I was nice. I didn't swear that much. I wasn't, we had a kid in our class. His name was Alan West. He would go up on top of, for that playground, he'd go up on top of this, like, shed, and he would rip the shingles off, and he'd zip them at kids on the playground. Zoom! I'd say, man, I'm not like Alan West. I'd have some kids in my class that would go to the same. I mean, in seventh grade, they'd go to downtown Cleveland during St. Patty's Day and drink the green beer. I didn't do that. See, I'm better. And so what this is, this I am, this is where, this is the scales. I do more good than bad. I'm better than other people. And what Paul says is kill that part of you. Kill it. Because that's not what's going to save you or have Christ in your life. What, what, what is your identity wrapped up in? For instance, I'll give you one that you guys all know about. How about the lady who was white, but she thinks she's black? If you read about it, she really started taking on this identity of blackness because she, she wanted to join in with their struggle. But in her mind, really, th she thought she was more superior than the whites who didn't. So she found a lot of goodness in herself because she identified with the blacks. So she saw herself as exalted over others because of her blackness, which really she didn't have. But now she wanted to put it on her like that. I'll tell you what, and I don't, I don't think the first service took too well to this, but I think homosexuality has the same thing. Homosexuals feel they're superior to the non-homosexual because they feel they're more tolerant. They are more loving, they're more respectful, and they, they identify in that world. And so they'll fight in that world, and they'll, they'll hang on to that identity. I remember talking to a guy, and I said, what if Christ wanted you to give up that identity according to his word? Well, what do you mean? What if Christ wanted you to identify in him, not in your homosexuality? That was like, he knew if that would be true, he'd have to die to lust, actually. Your identity makes you feel that you are better, kinder, more accepting than other people. But if you want Christ, that has to die. And then you live under this understanding 
when I die, now I live by faith. Those are appropriated promises of the Bible. I live by faith. Under his identity. Here's some things I wrote down as I was thinking about this. I even think there are some people who are, their identity is in being hunters. And they feel they have every right to leave their wife for two weeks, drink, get drunk, because it's, you know, it's camp up there. And I'm a hunter, and that's what hunters do. We drink and get drunk. And it, it, what stays up in the hunting lodge, what happens and stays up in the hunting lodge. You know, and I'm a hunter, and, you know, they think there's something because they can grow a long beard. And some people take down that identity. Is that really who Christ wants you to be? Really? He's not against hunting, but I think he's against you being a hunter as if you're superior to other people because you hunt. Like there's some people that will boast about all of their hunting foray. Is that really what Christ wants you to be? Die to it. Jesus wants to clean you out and make you like him. He may still let you have your beard, but that, it shouldn't matter. People have all kinds of identities. What defines them? Even sometimes, you know, I, I know women that like to gossip and feel superior to their kids and their husbands, and they take pride in controlling them. As if because they're, I am the mom, so I have the right to tell everybody what to do. Die to that! Love, serve. People hold on to these identities. And I'm just making a case. If you don't die to these things, I don't believe the life of Christ will be in you. I want you to go to 1 Thessalonians. Let me give you one more example. We live in a culture that believes anything with sex goes. Any choice could be really actually Hebrews. Well, let me show, keep your finger in 1 Thessalonians 4. Let me show you how Hebrews puts it. Hebrews 13. Verse 4. And this talks about what, what kind of sexual behavior is sanctified behavior. So Hebrews 13, verse 4, is very clear. It says marriage, and, it does, and that word marriage does, it does assume it's just a man and a wife in here. That's what that means. So marriage should be honored by all, this is Hebrews 13, 4, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So what he's saying is you want to know the correct context of a sexual relationship? A marriage bed. Anything outside of that is outside of the will of God. Well, a lot of people don't like that because they feel transgendered or whatever they want. So they're putting their identity, but God says die to that and take and live by faith in what he wrote in the Word. 1 Thessalonians 4 says the same thing. Verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual morality, that each of you should learn to control his own body. He's saying, this is the way I want you to live. It is God's will. Live like this. And if you do, Christ's life will take over your life. Whatever you are depending on, and whatever you take pride in to define who you are, is probably what you need to die to if Christ is going to be alive in you. I'll say that one more time. Whatever you are depending on, and take great pride in to define who you are is probably what you need to die to if Christ is going to be alive in you. This is so hard. It really is. Here's how I'll end it, and I'll just say, and the reason why is because when you have real grace, 
grace is all in. True grace is not the grace of, I'm saved by grace so I can do whatever I want. True grace is now you are going to live the way he's always wanted you to live. Look at how verse uh, Galatians verse 21 is of chapter 2. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. What he's saying is, if grace is really going to be applied to your life, you need to be all in. You need to be under new management. You need to let God take over. This weekend, Ken and I went to this thing called Acton University in downtown Grand Rapids, and it was, it was heavy, heavy. There's a thousand people from all over the world that were learning about faith, work, and economics, and how faith is infused in your work and in the economic, political system and law. And they were some of the smartest, really smartest people I've ever heard in my life. A lot of these speakers were from the previous denomination I was in. And um, one of the last days, I listened to this guy. He was a brilliant philosopher. I've, I have a number of his books. But as he was talking, somebody asked him about life. And he said, he said it like this with a really pained expression on his face. And mind you, this guy's brilliant. I have a lot of respect for him. But he said this, he goes, every day I'm trying to keep God satisfied. I'm trying to satisfy him. That's what my life is, and I hope I satisfy him. And what I want to tell the guy is he's satisfied. He's satisfied. He's satisfied in you if you've embraced Christ. And if you want him to live, live by faith, not by works and Christ will be manifest in you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, I pray that you'll take, really these are some pretty, pretty heavy concepts. I pray that, God, you will um, assist all of us to digest this and meditate on it and help us, God, to realize that we can't earn your favor. We receive your favor. You want us, after we receive your favor, to let you manage us. Help us to do that. Help us, God, to stop exalting our pride and help us to really live by faith in your promises. Jesus, you can fulfill this prayer, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.